Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to let you know, uh, just a note, this episode was recorded back in June of this year, so when we're talking about Alan's book coming out in October, it did, it came out in October. It's called Allies, and it's been very successful. If you want to pick it up, you can at your local bookstore, as Alan recommends, uh, but if you're not going to do that, then I say get it on Amazon and use the link that I've got in the show notes when you buy Alan's book, Allies, from Amazon from that link, or when you buy anything from Amazon using that link. A percentage of that transaction, a small part, comes back to us here at the show at no extra cost to you and helps keep the Warp Core lit here. It's a great way to support the show and we'd appreciate it. If you're not going to buy it at a local bookstore, buy it through Amazon and help us out. Thanks. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's always fun talking to Alan and having him on again and we talk about really a great pair of episodes from DS9 and a pivotal pair of episodes uh, from essentially the midpoint of DS9 or close to it. So enjoy the show, and with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Anything Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I too have been described as floral, musky, and spicy. Joining me again on this episode is New York Times bestselling author Alan Gratz. Alan has written over a dozen historical and fantasy novels for young readers. He's also the author of The Assassination Game, a Starfleet Academy young adult novel set in the Kelvin universe. His new novel, Allies, comes out on October 15th and tells the story of young resistance fighters and American soldiers in World War II as they fight to survive German-occupied France on D-Day. Alan, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Permission to come aboard. Permission granted. Good to have you back aboard. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about Improbable Cause and The Die is Cast, the 20th and 21st episodes of the third season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Star Trek presents a future where humanity has achieved peace and equilibrium. Every week on TOS and TNG, we see heroic eidolons of egalitarianism compare their society to those of other beings and find them wanting. And the USS Enterprise, whatever the model letter, was the literal vehicle through which those stories were told. But when DS9 debuted in 1993, it presented a stationary setting that was at the crossroads of two cultures, and audiences were introduced to a cast of characters who existed outside of the Federation's embrace ones who eschewed and in some cases openly scoffed at the benevolent values of Starfleet. One such character was Garrick, a plain, simple tailor, whose pleasant and unassuming facade was a mask for his deadly skills, his remorseless philosophy, and the deep agony he felt after being exiled from his homeworld. It may be the human truths that Trek explores that make us like the franchise, but it's the lies that keep us coming back, especially the lies. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. But first, Alan, as an author who has many, many fans and who has spent a lot of time traveling to schools and meeting students, you must get a lot of fan mail. Do you respond to fans? I do. Uh, so at the beginning of my career, when I was less popular or uh, less well-known, um, it was much easier to write back to kids. So, and, and the funny thing is, of course, my fan mail comes from middle schoolers. So um, sometimes it's a class assignment. 
Sometimes it's like, um, hey, we had to read your book in my class and we had to write a letter. So here's my letter. You know, those are those aren't great. Um, but uh, I still tried to write back to those kids anyway. Uh, and uh, the best ones, though, are like I I never finished a book before and I picked up one of your books and I loved it. Or um, I've read this book six times now The the kids who write to you because they're they're really passionate about you and your books. And, you know, we, we live in an era, you've talked about this many times on the show with other guests in particular. Um, uh, we live in a, an era where with social media, uh, content creators, uh, for lack of a better uh, general t- word for it, uh, are incredibly approachable and credit. You can find the, the people who made your favorite show, the people who wrote your favorite book and you can write to them. And, uh, I get a lot of emails from kids. I get, um, I don't get as much on Facebook as you, uh, as a person who writes for teenagers or for adults would get, because uh, a lot of kids aren't on Facebook, or if they are, they're just sharing stupid pictures uh, um, with each, with their friends. Um, but uh, but but they find me, and uh, I've gotten more and more letters, um, almost to the point where it's it's really hard to keep up with it. But I do like to write back. The, the kids who write me the super personal letters, I really try to write something very personal back to them. The rest of them, I've ended up doing um, sort of a Mad Lib uh, letter, uh, author letter back, <laughs> where it's like, um, "Hey, thanks for reading blank," <laughs> you know, and 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 I have on the back side they fill in all the things, and on the on you know on the front they they can go through and, and read this uh, sort of uh, letter. I call it the letter omatic. Um, but when you know when you write for middle schoolers and you send back a Mad Lib, that's probably um, I hope a pretty good thing. <laughs> and I'm sure your fans appreciate it. <laughs> Your upcoming novel, Allies, is already number one on the children's military fiction list on Amazon, and it has to be one of your most ambitious stories yet. And it follows four characters, is that right? Yeah, actually more than that. Uh, I think it's more like, uh, I think, seven characters. And uh, uh, it took me a moment uh, moment to remember because my original draft had something like, uh, I don't know, two dozen characters. It was kind of out of of control. Um, And uh, through the editing process, uh, knocked it down to uh, seven characters. But yeah, they're... Um, as you said in, in your intro to me, uh, and I appreciate that, um, it's resistance fighters, it's, um, it's soldiers coming up on the beach, it's uh, people who found themselves in the middle of D-Day and, and threw in to help the soldiers on the beaches, um, it's the paratroopers, it's the, the medics who were there to, to work on the beaches. Um, you know, I, I try to tell many, many different perspectives on that day, all from the Allied side. I, I had considered in an earlier draft doing some German perspectives, um, it, it, like, like the movie and, and book Longest Day did, um, but eventually just uh, winnowed it down to, um, to those seven sort of allied point of views, trying to show the, the number of people involved in this. But also one of the things I hadn't seen with a lot of books about D-Day in particular was um, the way that marginalized uh, people were a part of D-Day. We often see the white dudes running up the beach, and um, that was a huge part of it. But there were there were African American soldiers at D Day. Uh, there were women who were serving in sport roles, but also uh, on the beaches as um, as nurses uh, right after the fact, and certainly women fighting in the resistance. Um, there were Jews in the American Army who were suffering uh, persecution and prejudice while they were fighting to liberate uh, concentration camps. Um, there were, uh, there were Muslim fighters in the French resistance because, uh, the French, uh, were, were, they had colonized, uh, Algeria 
and uh, as a part of uh, getting the Algerians to help them fight. They said, well, we'll give you your independence if you help us fight. And, uh, and, and they thought, well, we, we got a better chance of getting that from France than with Germany. Um, and so the Algerians threw in with their uh, French overlords, if you will. And um, uh, then uh, after the war, France said, yeah, <laughs> we were just kidding. Uh, and that led to a really uh, bloody revolution in Algeria. But again, what I was trying to do is not only tell the story of D-Day, but also show a number of different people whose stories are often not told when we hear war, World War II narratives like this. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like it's a world war. You know, it's like it, it's like it included <laughs> everybody. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's a popular yeah. setting. Uh, D-Day in particular is a popular setting. So I'm guessing yeah. you found a lot of research material. But how did you coordinate these multiple storylines all working together? Yeah, what I tried to do was work through it. Uh, it, it whenever I'm writing about a particular moment in time, I can use uh, the, the chronology of it. So I can say, who were the first people there? And really, right after midnight, you had paratroopers dropping in uh, yeah. to uh, to try and take over key bridges and, and to to take out a particular uh, gun emplacements on the beaches, knowing that six hours later that there were going to be soldiers hitting the beach in those spots. So really what I did was I just, as I researched, as I read many different books about D-Day, I just kept a, a running chronology and said, um, who were the first people there? Who, what, what happened next? What happened next? And then trying to pick out the, the best stories, the, the most important stories of that day from those different times and, and those different actions. We've talked before on the show about your Kelvin Universe novel, The Assassination Game, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm probably going to check it out soon. I'm cool. preparing to tape a live show at a convention coming up where we'll be putting Star Trek 2009 and the Kelvin Universe as an institution on trial. Uh -huh. uh, not with prejudice, necessarily. It's just that <laughs> many people, um, myself included, are not real big fans sure. of the Abrams movies, and yet there's people who really, really love them. Yeah. And so we're going to try to find a point of connection between the two camps. And my lineup to this point has been... I don't like them. I don't feel like they have the spirit of, you know, the the original Trek uh, in mind, whatever that means. Right. But now that we have a new universe going forward of Discovery and Picard and all these other shows on CBS All Access, I feel more mm, I feel more accepting uh, of the idea of them being a fun sort of side thing now that they don't have to represent and hold the banner of Trek going forward. So uh, it was always a bucket list thing for me to write for Star Trek. Um ever since I was, uh, wanted to be a professional writer. Uh, and, and, and my first, very first podcast with you, when we talked about Darmok, I talked about how, um, uh, how one of my first things I ever submitted to try and get a professional publishing credit was uh, a Star Trek novel to pocket books. <laughs> and, uh, so when the opportunity came along to finally get my chance to write and it turned out to be the Kelvin universe, I was like, Oh, well, you know, how, how, how important is that bucket? Um, no, uh, but, but I still jumped at the chance. Uh, and, um, I, I am a fan of the 2009 Star Trek. Um, I, I really do like it. Um, I'm not a fan at all of its follow-up into darkness. I think it's a pretty terrible movie. And there were things I liked about the third film. Uh, but, but I really didn't, it's not one I own or have really, I, I'm not even sure I've watched it more than once or twice. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoyed 
the in the third film how it felt like we were kind of trying to get back to the idea of them going just going on missions and that sort of thing. And I think we've spoken on the podcast before about unfortunately that they just talk about it. You know, it's like, oh, we've been doing these missions for a long time. And I'm like, well, we, we haven't seen you do the missions for a long right. time. We, right. That would have been really cool to watch. Um, so I, I really like the, the characters. Uh, I like the, the way that the actors took those characters and, and made them their own. Um, I really felt like it breathed uh, a fresh life into those TOS characters. Um, but I totally understand the criticisms of the Kelvin universe. Um, it's a new kind of storytelling that we've seen, uh, not just with Trek, but with, with television and, um, and movies uh, where, you know, like, oh, we can have red matter and it doesn't really matter what that is. Uh, right. It's just the, the MacGuffin that, that, that blows up this planet. Um, and I think that there's a sort of fast and loose quality of story writing that a lot of people have used where it, it, uh, this was one of my criticisms of the first season, uh, first season of discovery that often surprise was favored over deeper plot exploration. And yeah. yeah, And and so, um, I feel like the, the Kelvin universe is kind of a product of that and, and maybe also, unfortunately sort of set the tone for some future Trek, including discovery. And, and we'll have to see what happens with, with other, um, with other Trek incarnations. But, yeah. um, I don't know. I love that first movie. I remember being in the theater and just, um, <laughs> enjoying it. But, um, uh, but for the other two, I, I, I felt like it just really, I don't know. I've yeah. seen the first one a couple times now, yeah. just in preparation for this, and I'm I'm starting to come around on the charm of it. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to what you pointed out about surprise, you know, and twists and that sort of being the uh, kind of flavor of the film, I also feel like maybe this is possibly um, just a metatextual thing, but they were they were both wise. Well, they were wise to do this, which is they were wise to set up their characters as being sort of behind um, in terms of competency. Like you think about uh, the Star Trek show, you've got the best of the best on the flagship. Right. They're always going to get it right. They're going to face things that are unknowable, but they're going to figure it out. Whereas like 2009, it's like, whoop, 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 you know, yeah. Kirk and company are just, they're all <laughs> beginners. They all got their jobs because the person in front of them died. And yeah. I th- that makes them scrappy and it makes them attractive to an audience. But I think it's also the writers saying, well, how do we introduce reintroduce old characters or introduce new characters who have the same competency. Let's try this instead. And when I look at it like that, then I don't get depressed that uh, <laughs> Kirk is running around you know, with giant hands and he's tripping right. all over himself yeah. and stuff. You see it, was it more definitely as... silly stuff like that. And yeah. uh, there are things that are done in, in, in a lot of modern stories and, and especially in reboots that, that are like head scratching kind of things where it's like, why are we being silly here? Or why, um, <laughs> you know, why is this goofball? Why are our characters not as smart or as capable as we thought they were, you know, in, yeah. in previous incarnations? Um, and I, uh, I think maybe, I think it, a lot of it gets down to, um, uh, trying to just entertain. I, I read an interesting criticism of some later, uh, of recent Marvel comics saying mm. that they're, they're very cartoony. And they don't mean the illustrations. They mean, right. you know, the, the 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 cartoon physics of you know uh, of of like Wally Coyote running in midair, or you know, just silly silly stuff. And sure. um, I 
I like that in its place. Um, you know, when I'm reading an Avengers comic, I don't really want to see the silly stuff, but I definitely want it out of my unbeatable Squirrel Girl. And so, sure. um, I don't know. But but then when it when it finds its way into the major franchise, when it when it finds its way on, it, there are a lot of people who hated Thor Ragnarok, um, and I love <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> I yeah. think it's one of the best Marvel movies. And I've read yeah. some people who are just like, like we need to strike it from the record. And oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I. I um, but he's I the perfect like, character for that because I thought so. I he thought so. is the most ostentatious. You Absolutely. know, he's he's just ripe for for parody. Yeah, yeah and I that's mean, kind of like what I think maybe their approach was with the Star Trek thing because Pine is almost like a Kirk Junior. Like an, I can yeah. almost see him this being the regular universe and he's like Kirk's you know son and he has to sort of live up to Kirk's legacy. That's yeah. kind of what those movies yeah, are that's doing. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I. I uh, I hope that when you guys do your um, your review of the 2009 Star Trek, um, that you uh, that you don't crush it. <laughs> um, uh, I still think it's a lot of fun. Uh, I wish that the the later two movies had um, had been better, uh, a lot better. Uh, I think that those kind of put uh, a nail in the coffin of the film franchise. Um, mm-hmm. And um, now it, 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 Trek has been traditionally. Uh, that it's it's real home is television. So yeah. so perhaps we can just get back to to the TV shows and um, and like you said earlier, maybe with the with the Starfleet Academy cartoon, isn't that the one that's going to be the cartoon? I think um, yes. You know maybe that one will be silly because it's from the writer from a writer who worked on Rick and Morty, and um, you know we'll have a silly one. We'll have the the nostalgic uh, introspective House of Picards. We'll have the the new flashy surprise ridden. Uh, discovery, there'll be something for everybody, perhaps. So right. We'll, hopefully, we'll see. Yeah, I can't imagine them trying to uh, nerf Picard into uh, some kind of wacky characters, trying I, to keep up with everybody else. Yeah, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah, uh, and and from everything that that Stewart has said about the show and that's come out about it that I've read, um, they keep warning this is an introspective show. They, which yeah, uh, yeah, I don't I don't know what that means. Are we, does that is that code for there's not going to be a plot? <laughs> Yeah, or just less explosions, perhaps. <laughs> well, why did you choose this two-parter to discuss today? Okay, yeah. So uh, I love Garrick, uh, and uh, mm. you've had a couple of guests on the show who've waxed uh, um, poetic about Garrick and how fa- mm. fabulous he is, and I have to concur with that. So when when I thought about what I would pitch to you to talk about, I was like, well, I love Garrick. Let me find a, a great Garrick episode. Also. I have been heard to say, uh, even here on this quality podcast, that Deep Space Nine is my favorite of the uh, of the uh, television shows, and this is my fourth time on the show, and mm-hmm. uh, I have yet to talk about Deep Space Nine. Uh, I had yet to, and so I was like, well, I better put my mouth where my mouth is and and pick uh, a Deep Space Nine episode. Um, so it was it was both of those. I wanted to do a Deep Space Nine and talk about. Uh, talk about that show and, and, and a particular episode, or in this case two, but also, um, man, I love Garrick. There's so many great characters on D Space Nine, but uh, definitely he's one I wanted to talk about. I also, uh, I loved Garrick enough to that, I, that I read A Stitch in Time, the, oh, uh, yeah. the book that Andrew Robinson wrote about his own character. And uh, from everything I've read, he actually wrote the book. This was not, there was, mm-hmm. there was no ghostwriter there was no co-writer, um, and, and this is something we can talk about uh, in our discussion of the episode. Um, 
because he used he basically from what i understand he was writing a diary while he was playing the character on the show exploring garrick's background and then eventually pitched that as a book to pocket books and it was turned into uh, a novel so um, his is one of the characters. Uh, I haven't read all the Deep Space Nine novels. I've read a few. That's one I did because I love his character so much. Yeah. Uh, not to mention that the last thing that we talked about was Threshold. So it's nice to be doing a good one. Yeah, good. I, I'm glad. Yeah, I wanted to. I, I was like, man, well, I could pick another bad one. But no, I just uh, we need a we need a unicorn chaser for that one. Make a thing out of it. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking about the tradition of two-parters, like how TNG really kicked it off at the end of their third season with Best of Both Worlds. And thereafter, ended all of their seasons, you know, in the first yeah. part of a two-parter. But DS9 never really does that. Instead of ending with a cliffhanger, a to-be-continued, at the end of their seasons, they're ending with a, an emotional cliffhanger of sorts. Yeah. You know, something significant or dire happens. But we're not going to pick right up where it left off when the show comes back. We're usually, when we come back, immersed in the consequences of the previous episode. I think TNG is trying to keep you watching yeah. and they keep resetting the status quo but ds9 is really building on these game-changing developments in that serial storytelling way yeah i'd agree with that you know we see there are two parters falling in the middles of seasons you know not, not, yeah. not particularly the, the smack dab in the middle but but somewhere in the in the run um where they just they felt like they had a story that warranted more than one episode and in fact uh this one from what i've read started as a single episode and right. the writer's um, did not like the way it just quickly wrapped up. And uh, I guess it was uh, Michael Piller in his very last action as uh, executive producer on the show who said, uh, make it two. We're going to break right. it. We're going to make it, we're, you know, let's play two. We're going to make this a two-parter. Um, they quickly rewrote the end of it. They flipped a, the filming schedule. I think they were filming the, the um, Mirror Universe episode. They, I think they, so. I think they I think they played the Mirror Universe episode uh, earlier, like one week earlier than they were going to, to give them time to film the second episode for this. Right. Um, which is, uh, I think, the one of the reasons this is one of the only episodes in all of Star Trek that's oh, so one of the only two parters where the first episode and the second episode do not share the same title. Yeah. Um, right. So you know, I'm like. Um, uh, you know, uh, best of both worlds, part one and part two. And now we have uh, improbable cause and, and the die is cast. Um, but I've got some other thoughts on on how I, I think how wonderfully uh, the two writers who handled each of the episodes. Ref, well, how Ron Moore referred to the first episode that Echevarria wrote um, really masterfully for not knowing except like the week he was sitting down to write it, that this was part two of something and that had to get done pretty fast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a one reason that, I mean, just other than being really great and being uh, one of the major writers, um, you give something like that to Ron Moore. It's like, we got to yeah. blow this out real fast. So yeah. Take not to, to not, you know, you, you, it's, um, I used to have a joke about writing that, um, cheap, fast or good pick two. Uh, okay, sure. <laughs> right. You, you can't, you can't have all three. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but Ron Moore, it appears, is capable of doing all three at once. I think he can. Yeah. Well, we are talking the DS9 episodes Improbable Cause and The Die is Cast. Cause first aired on April 24th 
1995, and Cast aired the next week on May 1st, 1995. The story for Improbable Cause was by Robert Laterman and David R. Long. Laterman was a writer, director, and editor for all of Roddenberry slash Berman Trek. In addition to this episode, he also provided the story for the fifth season DS9 episode, The Assignment, with his writing, writing partner David Long. And the pair also wrote the seventh season Voyager episode, Nightingale. Laterman also directed two episodes of TNG, and he was an editor on over 100 episodes of the combined series. The teleplay for the episode was by Rene Echeverria, of course, a writer and producer on TNG and DS9. No introduction needed. And as we mentioned, the script for the Dias cast is by Ronald D. Moore. Also, no intro required. Cause was directed by series star Avery Brooks, and we'll take a moment to talk about him in a minute or two. And cast was directed by David Livingston, another person who needs no introduction. But suffice it to say, the most prolific director of Berman Trek and the man who really cemented, I think, the visual style for the franchise post-TNG. Yeah. The start date for the episode is never given on screen, although the action takes place in the year 2371 by Earth Reckoning. And chronologically, it must take place sometime after 48543.2, which is the date given in the episode Destiny. But that was five episodes earlier. And the next date that we get is 48764, which is the date in which the episode Shakar takes place. And that's three episodes after this two-parter. It's kind of a lack of star dates near the end of the third season, as many of these stories are non-Starfleet tales. Yeah, like the very next episode after these two is, if I'm not mistaken, the the one where Jake and and, uh, and Cisco do yeah they build the light sail ship right. uh, which is yeah. a fantastic episode yeah. um, I think and uh, but totally non continuity <laughs> like it's yeah it just like fits we have anywhere. this huge momentous <laughs> stuff that happens in these two episodes and then we take an episode to build a light ship <laughs> yeah it's also the first episode that uh, we see the goatee and yeah. Cisco's transformance into or transformation into the man called Hawk so I guess from a continuity perspective they did kind of have to put it in a certain place they did and and so look many people love to sort of tongue-in-cheek date the good TNG episodes from when Riker gets a beard and and the, <laughs> the good ones in Deep Space Nine from when or the great ones from when um when Cisco gets his beard and, and, and shaves his head. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm down with that. I, I think there's, there's plenty of examples of good episodes before both of those, uh, um, beard episodes, uh, beard, uh, accomplishments, achievements. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, sure. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, if we're to mark the really, really good deep space nine from the time when Cisco becomes Hawk, um, I think we have to start with these two episodes uh, particularly the second one, um, and say like, like in the intervening time, like the w- because because everything has hit the fan, he grows the beard and shaves the head, and we're off. You know, like, like right, like this is what caused the beard, <laughs> and we have to give sure. time for the beard to come out. You know, so uh, yeah, I, it's a great it's a great turning point for the series, and, and we'll talk more about that too. Yeah, Hawk is the type of man who would say, you can't hear that transmission, it's too garbled, we're doing this anyway. (laughs) But Hawk is also the kind of man that would have tossed Eddington out an airlock, but we'll talk Uh, about that a little little later, too. (laughs) Uh, Your assignment, if you can, is to give us a, we'll give you a 50-word synopsis of these two episodes. I did did both in 25, I was prepared. Oh, that's fine, yeah. All right, here we go. Uh, It's pretty short as a consequence, but... uh, Garrick and Odo discover the Romulan and Cardassian intelligence agencies have joined forces to launch a sneak attack against the Founders' homeworld. It goes poorly. (laughs) (laughs) That's my exactly 25 
uh, word uh, double summary for both episodes. Well, that, that, that'll do. That's perfect. Uh, we mentioned Avery Brooks before. Uh, he's, of course, an actor and a director as well. He directed nine episodes of DS9 in total. And that's something that's discussed in the recent DS9 documentary, What We Left Behind, which I think you've seen. I have. You know, when, when it was first announced, I think that there was uh, some sorrow amongst fans that apparently they were not able to secure Avery Brooks because I guess he considers to be this part of his life behind him, which I can understand, I guess, as a performer. But they did manage to get him in some capacity because he, of course, appears in a few interviews and he has discussed for much of the documentary. Sure. I don't you can't talk about Deep Space Nine without talking about yeah. Avery Brooks, um, besides being. The, the commander slash captain of the show. Um, he was so much a defining part of what it was um, and, and did direct episodes, um, including, I think he directed far beyond the stars, um, uh, which he was um, amazing in. Yes. Am I, am I, yeah. I think, I think he directed that as well. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, I was disappointed. It's noticeable when you watch the documentary uh, that Avery Brooks uh, obviously they invited him. Obviously they would want him to be a part of it, but it was clear that he had said that he wasn't interested. Um, I, I think that, yes, we, as fans, we can say, Oh, but don't you love it? Don't you want to come back? But let's be fair. Um, this is a man who probably at every Star Trek convention he ever went to at every dragon con at, at every comic con sat up on that stage and somebody said, what was it like to be the first black captain in Star Trek? And yeah. uh, how many times can – he? There were, as I've read, uh, he began to be frustrated that people were asking him basically like, what's it feel like to be black rather than asking him <laughs> actual questions about his acting and, and, and yeah. the character on the show? And I, uh, when, when Avery Brooks says, I've kind of said all I can say about Deep Space Nine, I think maybe – that's because that's he gets asked pretty much the same question over and over again. Obviously, people have asked him other stuff, but yeah. how many times can you sit up there on stage and you're just waiting for it and you're waiting for it? Um, there's a uh, I, I work in the kids book field and and um, there are uh, there, there's a there's been a lot of call for diversity in children's books um, for for uh, for centuries. We have predominantly white characters in children's books and. Um, that has been changing, but there are studies that show that there are still like 10% of the books last year had, uh, an African-American main character, uh, you know, and, 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 and that's the most represented of people of color. You start getting into, uh, you know, like Chinese characters or Korean characters and it goes down beneath 1%. I mean, native mm -hmm. American characters beneath 1%. So like, this is something that the kids book world is talking about nonstop. But there's been a call um, among my friends who are people of color who write books for kids. They're like, please, please, please stop putting me on diversity panels. I don't want to talk about diversity. I want to talk about the characters <laughs> that I'm writing and the books yeah. that I've written. And I got to say, I, I, it, if that's his reason for not wanting to do it because he, he feels like he's ha that, that he's been there and done that a million times, I, I totally get it. It's not his job to tell us why we need diversity is, you know, he was there yeah. to be this amazing character and do this amazing work. And he did it. Yeah. And, um, it's a shame though, because obviously the, the documentary would have asked him about the other stuff too. Uh, yeah. but, but I get it. I get why he, he might choose to, to not be a part of that anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's understandable. I think the one thing that you kind of miss is that, you know, part of the documentary just focuses on the group being back together again yeah. and enjoying yeah. each other's company. But even that sort of fits because the way that the show ends with him sort of removed and off somewhere else and this this sort of elevated figure, like he still maintains that position yeah. like in the context of the documentary. Yeah, it does fit for the for the character in a way that the that you can see. You know, I never read any of the expanded universe novels be like that, that were supposed to take place after Deep Space Nine, uh, the, the last episode of Deep Space Nine. So I'm not sure in what way they would have even used his character. Um, you know, because if I'm not mistaken, in the last one, it's been a while since I watched the last ones, but he sort of disappears and says, "I'll I'll, I'll be back sometime," and yeah. and we don't know when or if he's going to come back. Right. Uh, so. Uh, I don't know what they did with him, but he it felt very Avery Brooks, like I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And of course, in the documentary, you get to see a proposed eighth season in which, yeah. uh, you know, we see the return, uh, at least in some way, of Cisco. And I got to say, like, you know, those guys are all still working today, but they still got the magic. It's like they fell right back into it. Those are some of my favorite scenes from the documentary. Yeah, I love that, too. Uh, I, I always love to see writers at work and, and uh, writers rooms, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a craft junkie when it comes to writing. And, <laughs> and so I, I loved seeing that inside uh, look at what it might have been like for them to just sit around and spitball ideas for for a, a full season arc um, and, and for an individual episode. You know, one of my favorite things, and of course, I was watching it in the theater, so I don't have the DVD to like pause it. Um, but there were a number of shots of the big whiteboard, and there was a lot more stuff on that whiteboard than we heard in the documentary because right, they right. just didn't have time for that. Yeah. So it'd be really fun. I don't know if the extras are going to have like the entire filmed uh, thing. I, that that would probably be incredibly tedious, but um, but at least some chance to see what what else they put up on that whiteboard would be fascinating. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Well, here's some interesting facts about this episode or these episodes from our memory banks. Yeah. Um, as you'd mentioned before, the original concept of the episode was as a single episode. And I think the way they had it set up was it'd be essentially the same story. But at the end of it, uh, Tane would, you know, have Odo and uh, Garrick imprisoned and uh, Garrick would threaten him with the contents of this isolinear rod that right. he mentions to Bashir. Uh, which becomes a joke in this uh, you know, first joke. part of a two-parter. Recycle that, yeah. yeah. But uh, in that episode, uh, there would be something on there that we'd never really find out what it is. Um, also, the sort of direction or focus of the episode changed a little bit. Originally, uh, the order would be looking to assassinate Garrick um, for his part in the episode Second Skin uh, when he kills Obsidian uh, Order Officer Entek. Uh, but as they began to develop it more, they thought it would be better to have this be something of a continuation or a sequel episode to the episode Defiant, where Thomas Riker uh, steals the titular ship to investigate the claims that the Cardassians are amassing ships in the Aureus system. And that turns out to be true because they are amassing a fleet. Yeah, it's a great callback. You know, it, and this is, I think, one of the real strengths of Deep Space Nine is that um, – that when they were trying, they weren't thinking, how do we make a standalone episode where Garrick blows up his own shop? You know, that was, I think, one of the original sort of key pitches to them. Garrick blows mm -hmm. up his own shop to bring Odo into an investigation, which is right. a fantastic plot point. But Come. then they're like, OK, great. How can we tie this in to things that we have already established? And that's something that I don't think that TNG ever really stopped to do. They were so focused on the episodic uh, thing that they they rarely made reference even references 
to previous things that had happened, let alone say, let's tie it to that. Let's, let's make this a continuation of that story. Um, I think that's one of the real strengths of deep space nine. And, um, I, I guess around this time, the you know Voyager was was on the on the t- was on the table. Had TNG ended by this time? I can't remember. Ninety three. Uh, it should have been. Well, wait. What yeah, was it? Nineteen ninety five. So yeah, it had ended. It had ended. So, but but at some point though, they basically like Deep Space Nine was like, you guys just go do your thing, yeah. and we're going to focus on Voyager because it's our new flagship for the new for the new this new channel and everything. And um, they they were like okay great we can be as self referential as we want to here and and that of course we see that evolve until like there's a nine part finale to this show <laughs> right. in its in its last season so um, uh, they just let them play uh, to a great extent and and I think this is one of those early examples of that I think it's great that they were able to say let's let's see where we can connect this uh, I I gotta say though if so I, I think it's funny that the that they took you know, that the writer said this thing that we're doing to get out of this episode is so cliche. Like, if you don't let me go, I've got this isolinear rod with a bunch of dirt on it that's going to get you in trouble, right? I mean, right. at this point, an Auburn Tain is like, he and the Romulans are are plotting uh, this massive attack on the founder homeworld. I don't know what could possibly be on an isolinear rod that would, that he would care enough at this point. But right. but. It, it is it is a, such a cliche, and, and Ron Moore said everything they came up with in the writers' room just felt like a cliche to get them out of it, and that's why Pillar said, "So so take more time and and do something different." How was it supposed to end, though? Do you know? Do you know what the were they? We know in 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 Dias cast they attack the home world. It fails. Yeah. Was that going to happen in this episode? As far as I could see, yes, it would okay. be everything that happens um, story-wise in the episodes. It's just condensed into one de- one episode. And so Garrick and Odo would have gotten away before the failure. Yeah, I assume. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so much more interesting, of course, to have them there. <laughs> and, and we're jumping ahead to the second episode. I am at least, but the to have you know that moment where the the Akbar line, it's a trap, you know, to realize <laughs> right. in, in the moment that they've been that they've been tricked and that that almost that 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 combination of delight and fear absolute fear on Garrick's face like like the the, the respect like oh my gosh what a great trick <laughs> you know? yeah right <laughs> and now i'm going to die for it um, yeah and also just the action of trying to fill out now two hours of TV where it was right. one before you give it to Ron Moore and say hey Ron kill time and he writes a scene where Garrick tortures Odo, and it's like the best scene. It becomes in... one of the iconic yeah. scenes, and and David, uh, I guess it was David Livingston that directed that one, uh, said that he kept that on his director's reel for the rest of his career. Okay. Wow. Uh, that that he felt like that was some of his best work, some of the actors' best work, some of the writers' best work. Um, yeah, uh, we we do unfortunately in that episode also get the um, the the Eddington business on the on, on the, the Defiant. <laughs> Um, yes. which does feel like, uh, like killing time a little bit, like, yes. like on purpose delaying the defiant. Um, yes. but what we get in return is that, that scene with Odo and Garen. That's true. 
Yeah. Uh, before we uh, yes. get to Dia's cast, we'll wrap up in Probable Cause. Yep. Uh, the Tal Shiar get their new uniforms in this episode, yeah. uh, which were apparently the brainchild of Ron Moore and costume designer Robert Blackman, because Moore hated the big shoulder pad quilted look of the old uniforms, <laughs> which um, I love, but I, I guess I can see cool. why you'd want to change it, though. Yeah. Yeah. These are certainly more understated. And, and, and Moore said, at least let the Tal Shiar have something yeah. different. <laughs> let them uh, be the cool guys. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Right. I, I like the big quilted uh, thing. I thought they were pretty great. Uh, maybe they got them at like the uh, the 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 Romulan Eagle or uh, um, or something like that. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, so the yeah, we also get the uh, the debut of my favorite fashion uh, piece in this, and that is the Cardassian cardigan. Um, yes, <laughs> in Auburn Tane is wearing a uh, cardi cardi, as I might call it. Sure, um, uh, I thought well. So Garrick is always wearing these amazing outfits, but then like, what are they going to put Tane in? And he's basically like, like George Smiley walking in the door, you know, from Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I mean, he's <laughs> yeah. like an old spy guy, but out right. of retirement. He's like, yeah, yeah chilling in my card again, you know. Um, <laughs> so there is some, yeah, some new fashion uh, for the Romulans and the Cardassians in this one. Yeah, Garrick himself gets a real sort of stylish, uh, yeah. distinctive look too when he goes evil. It reminds me of like <laughs> a like a Jack Kirby like superhero costume, like oh, something yeah, like sure. a, like an Eternal would wear or something. Yeah, but, for sure. Yeah, or, yeah, um, yeah, and uh, uh, the it's it's like in that X Men movie when Apocalypse, whenever he'd take over a new bad guy, would give him a makeover. Yeah, yeah, he gives him a makeover, <laughs> <laughs> just a little glow up. Yeah. But do something with your hair. I got you a new uniform. You're gonna, you're gonna love. <laughs> well, this episode was nominated for an Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Hairstyling for a yeah. series, uh, and it must have been the uh, catfish guy right. with the uh, friendly plastic balls in his hair that put it over the top. Yeah, this, this is the the perfume salesman. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a super strange look. <laughs> um, this is the point where they're just like, how many different ways can we mess up a person's face? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that was a weird. But I guess, you know, that that is that is some hairstyling. I love that scene, though, to pull yeah, that that's scene a great out. scene. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I, I mentioned Garrick and, and I, I should also have said at the top, it's not only, of course, a great Garrick episode. It's a fantastic two parter for Odo. Um, yeah. And we get to see Odo doing his thing on the station. We get to plumb the depths of his uh, connection to the founders and the home world. Um, it's a fantastic, fantastic, uh, episode for him. And that scene with the, with the perfume salesman slash assassin, they're both playing a game and they know it and they're both enjoying it. And, uh, you know, but what happens if we mix this with this and, oh, that might be a little too spicy, you know, I yeah. just, the writing of it's fantastic. It's yeah. given some time for the actors to really play with it. Um, and it's a really good red herring for what's really going on in the episode. I mean, when you're writing spy stuff, you can't ever, the, you know, the, what you see on the surface is never really what's going on. And yeah. yes, an Auburn Tane or through the Romulan, somebody, they hired him to go and kill Garrick, but there's way more going on here than meets the eye. And I love that Odo figures it out, but yeah. instead of setting up the sort of drawing room Poirot situation <laughs> where he reveals all the things, he's just, they don't have time for that. He's just like, yeah. why are you doing this? I know, I know you blew up your shop. Like what, what's the point of this? Right. Like, what's, what's behind this? That moment where he turns on Garrick and he's like, I know you blew up your own shop. And Garrick is speechless. He's like, wait, what's this? 
I don't think I've ever seen that look of surprise on your face before. And, yeah, yeah. You know, and Garrett turns around and is like, yeah, um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a great moment. And, and it's a, it's a fantastic surprise that is, that is earned. Odo has yeah. done his homework. Uh, I, you know, he, when Garrick walks in, he's like, you know, I'm sorry to tell you that, uh, that major Kira has an alibi. <laughs> like, like <laughs> we all know she didn't do this, you know, like, right. but I did the legwork. I, I know that you did this yourself because nobody else would do this. Right. Um, it's a great detective moment for Odo uh, yeah. and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a great reveal for Garrick. Of course he blew up his own shot. <laughs> As for the die is cast, it was the first episode, of course, where Iris Stephen Bear took over from mm-hmm. Michael Piller as executive producer because he was going off to run Voyager. And Bear was really committed to using the series' expanded budgets now to depict more space battles on screen. And the confrontation we get in this episode between the Dominion, the Tel Shiar, and the Obsidian Order is the first of many large-scale battles that we'll see as the series progresses and the war escalates. And even though there was uh, more money, uh, there wasn't an unlimited amount of money. (laughs) And so VFX supervisor Gary Hutzel uh, managed to save money in this episode by using transparencies of background Romulan and Cardassian ships instead of requiring full models to be used in some of the battle scenes. Yeah, you can't tell. I mean, I'd have to stop it and freeze it to really notice. I think it's a really clever bit of trickery to not have full scale models in the background. And uh, uh, but I love that Bear said. We, we know people love this and we love it and we want to see more of it. Um, sure. There are so many times in TNG and, and, and in the past of Deep Space Nine where we talk about things that happened, but we don't see them because we know they didn't have the budget for them. Um, yeah. And uh, but to to really do that and to to say, hey, we're going to get in. You want to see a big fight? Here's a big fight. And right. He just throws it down in that in that Dias cast episode, and it's fabulous. It's very. We're, I'm just about to talk about Shakespeare. It's very Shakespearean yes. to say that there's going to be a big battle. Cut to the next scene. Somebody runs in. We're totally losing the battle, <laughs> right. and we never see the battle. But right. uh, yeah, they wanted to put that on the screen. Yeah, uh, Julius died off stage. Right. Yeah. Uh, Julius Caesar is referenced several times in the episode. Uh, Bashir and Garrick, of course, are discussing the play by Shakespeare and the prologue of Improbable Cause. And he paraphrases Cassius's line uh, to Brutus, Garrick does, when he tells Tane that the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves uh, at the end of Dia's cast. And the phrase that Dia is cast, or Alea Iacta Est, itself comes from the phrase reportedly used by Julius Caesar before crossing the Rubicon with his legions in 49 B.C., both Plutarch and Suetonius attribute a form of the quote to him. And it's interesting, the shuttle that is commissioned to replace the Mekong, the shuttle that Garrick and Odo lose in this episode, uh, is dubbed later the Rubicon by Cisco. I think it's fabulous. Uh, I, I read that and uh, it researching this episode too, as well. And I thought, what a, like it, two weeks later, the new shuttlecraft shows up and it's called the Rubicon. And I was like, what a great like, you know, they were sitting around and they were like, we name them after rivers. So what <laughs> yeah. river are we going to name this one? Yeah. And they were like, wait, that episode where it got destroyed, we had all these Caesar references. It's got to be the Rubicon. It's yeah. genius. I just and, this, think and this is pre-internet. Like, this, yeah. who's going to catch this? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't the first time around. I mean, yeah. you know, like when I saw it, I didn't make that connection. But but watching them, you know, when you can binge watch it and then you can look up things. I knew the story of the of the Dias cast and crossing the Rubicon. Uh, I, I took Latin in high school and, oh, and sure. remembered my my Roman history uh, all too well, unfortunately. And um, <laughs> uh, but I I just thought that uh, that's and, and that's the kind of continuity 
that Deep Space Nine was weaving in and they didn't make a big deal of it. You know, they yeah. were just like it, sometimes a whole episode would be about something in the past, but sometimes it's just a reference to something in the past. Um, in this one, somebody uh, the, the, the deep throat Romulan or no, sorry, the deep throat Cardassian uh, asks Odo if he still does the, the Cardassian neck trick. Yeah, right. Which is a reference to something that was brought up like a season ago. Yeah. And and it's just this is a group of people who who are all in the writer's room and all saying, wait, we can reference that. We can connect it to this. We can do that. Deep Space Nine was really ahead of its time in that regard, I think. And in terms of the way we see that storytelling in TV today. And yeah, the the neck trick always reminds me of Goodfellas. It's like go get your shine box, <laughs> you know, right. and tell him to go get his shine yeah, do box. Do that thing, do that thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully, it ends up differently. Uh, but uh, yeah, so <laughs> well, the no, I, I love that. The, the calling the next one the Rubicon, um, the die is cast, all that stuff was really fabulous. And and again, I'll bring this back to Ron Moore. So so Echeverria has written a first episode. They changed the end of it to break it into two parts, but he's already written in the Caesar's conversation over breakfast, probably uh, putting on my writer's hat here. You know, that scene is all of that, 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 that play is all about betrayal. Yeah. And uh, he's going to start talking about Garrick and his betrayal of Tane. And so he's, he's pulling in some, some element to, to talk about betrayal. So then Ron Moore gets the assignment for the second episode. And he says, well, we've got the betrayal and we've got Caesar how can I work more Caesar into this? And we've got the Cassius line. We've got, um, you know, and then later on the Rubicon. Um, but this is, and he calls the episode the die is cast. And this is that moment where Caesar crosses the Rubicon. There's, it's, it's, it's become our, our a Darmok metaphor for a point of no return, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, we're going all in. And um, that's what the Romulans and Cardassians do in the second episode. And it changes this show for the next three seasons, three and a half seasons. Yeah, absolutely. The Cardassian informant that you mentioned previously, as we start talking about some of the guest stars in this episode, he was played by Joseph Ruskin. And Ruskin has a storied career in film and television, appearing first on TV in a 1955 episode of The Honeymooners. And he went on to roles in The Outer Limits, Time Tunnel, The Twilight Zone, and more. Ruskin has the distinction of being in all the pre-Discovery Trek series, uh, with the exception of TNG. He appeared initially as Galt in the original series episode, The Gamesters of Triskelion. Sure, okay. He would appear twice in DS9 as Tumek the Klingon, as well as the Cardassian informant. He appeared as the Vulcan master in the Voyager episode Gravity, and he played a Suliban doctor in the Enterprise pilot Broken Bow. Oh, and wow. technically, he did work for TNG as he played a Sona officer in Star Trek Insurrection. Oh, okay. And he wow. died in 2013. Uh, his last role was mob boss Primo Sparaza in the 2006 film Smoking Aces. <laughs> Very cool. He's great in this as a... Uh, all we see is are, are, are his eyes, yeah. uh, and and uh, I just—it's such a great deep throat moment. Of course, Odo still has connections. Yeah, I, follow I like the latinum, says, right? Yeah, right. And I love when he says, "Like I, I don't want you to see my face. I've I've changed it since the last time we saw each other." That's great mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, it, they, uh, Echevarria is really playing with the spy stuff in this one. I think you know the uh, and what spies would be like in the future, and and you know. I, I'm now out of your debt, but if you learn anything, I could be in your debt again. You, you know, again? this, yeah. <laughs> this, this tit for tat kind of trading thing that they do is, is really fantastic. 
Yeah. Uh, Juliana McCarthy appears as Mila, Tane's housekeeper, mm-hmm. and she'll, of course, appear again in the season seven episodes, The Dogs of War, uh, more Shakespeare there, right. and, of course, What You Leave Behind. Uh, McCarthy has made frequent film and TV appearances since the late 1970s, and I'm hoping that we can put to bed a question that I've had for a long time uh, as it relates to female Cardassians. Mm-hmm. Female Cardassians, they have the spoon, just like yeah. male Cardassians do. But the inside of the spoon, the depression is blue. And then the fourth uh, neck bone down on the side of their necks is blue as well. And I've always wondered, is that a genetic trait or is that cosmetic? Is that My something is that makeup. they put on? My makeup. vote is makeup. And I, sure. I, I, I've noticed that in the past. And my feeling was that they were, that the women, the Cardassian women were wearing makeup. Okay. Um, and I, I'd have to look at all the Cardassian women to see if they uniformly do it. Like, I can't remember, uh, oh, what is Ducat's daughter's name? Uh, Zial. Zial, thank you. Like she I does not have it. Okay, so so perhaps she's just doesn't wear makeup. Like, sure. like I, I can see that it could also be something, they could, you could totally argue, and this is all headcanon for us, but you sure. could totally argue that it's something that appears on some women and some that doesn't. But I, I like the idea that, look, many of the other female uh, members of, of other species in this show wear makeup. So yeah. why not them? Complicating it somewhat, uh, when we see Seska in her sort of halfway transition back mm-hmm. to Cardassian form, it is her spoon, if you will, is somewhat discolored. So oh. again, I don't know if she's just dipping her pinky in something and then freshening <laughs> up or, or what, but it drives yeah. me crazy. I like the idea. I like the idea of it being makeup. I, I like the idea that... Um, that not everybody in a race wears the same clothes and 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 wears the same kind of makeup. You know, yeah, we, yeah. we do that for our human characters and maybe for like the Bajorans or somebody who looks more human. Yeah. Um, but I, I always appreciate those small details in alien races um, because, of course, they would be as different as we are. Yeah. Yeah. No more monocultures. Right. Exactly. Uh, Leland Orser appears in the episode oh, as Lovak, or should yeah. I say the Changeling? Right. And he is an extremely prolific actor, probably a top 10, hey, it's that guy right. of the uh, modern Hollywood era. He's got many TV credits, including LA Law, The X Files, NYPD Blue, uh, Blue S- uh, CSI, and more. Some of his film credits include The Bone Collector, Pearl Harbor, Daredevil, Seven, and Saving Private Ryan. Those last two, he was the go to guy in the late 90s for shaky, sweaty guy freaking out about something. <laughs> Something. Uh, he's got that scene in Seven where he's, you know, the sort of ancillary victim of the killer. Right. And he's like, he 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 made me do it. You know, he's <laughs> he's that guy that we need some right. guy to just freak out here. And we and it's funny because in those roles he's playing the freak out, you know, the person who's freaking out. In this one, he's playing a fabulously cool-headed Romulan. Yes. Slash changeling. Right. And um, I I just think he has some fantastic lines. You know, like that. The moment in the second episode where Garrick pretty obviously is like, oh, I don't think we should kill Odo. You know, he <laughs> yes. could be useful. And so we let him go. Yeah, and, yeah. and Tane's like, <laughs> Tane's like not not going to believe this. Tane's about to, he's like, we're going to kill the guy. And, and you know, Lovok speaks up. No, we can learn stuff from torturing him. And um, But they're leaving and, and Lovok stops him. And he's like, why did you try to protect the changeling? It's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, you know, I'm a, I'm a practiced observer, Mr. Garrick. And I promise yeah. you that I will be observing you very closely. I mean, right. he has this, this real sinister uh, presence without 
being a mustache twirler. He is, yeah. he's like a, he's like a, like what a Vulcan would be if you're scared of him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. Scary Vulcan. Yeah. Uh, Orser's also played uh, several other characters in the Trek universe. He played the role of Guy in the second season DS9 episode Sanctuary, the role of Dejarin in the fourth season Voyager episode Revulsion, and he played Loomis in the third season Enterprise episode Carpenter Street. Hmm. Yeah, a guy with a lot of tar- Star Trek credits, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's brought his talents to Star Trek more than once. Kenneth Marshall appears as Michael Eddington, and I can <sighs> barely bring myself to talk about him. I hate <sighs> him so much. Yeah. Probably best known for playing the hero Colwyn in the 1983 movie Krull. He's also made a number oh of TV gosh. appearances. Yeah, He's really Krull? That's the guy from Krull. Oh yep. my gosh. Okay. <laughs> He's, uh, yep, it blew my mind too. Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, he's made a number of TV appearances in the 80s and 90s, including the title role in the 1982 miniseries Marco Polo. Mm. And his inclusion, I guess, from a yeah. story perspective, in the uh, third and fourth uh, season and then fifth season yeah. um, are, are, are good. But I think as you brought up before, what you were sort of getting at before is his action in this episode oh. is merely a, a stalling Space sort of tactic. Him. Space yeah. Him. Yes, well, that, and, and that too. He had. There's a. Maybe they didn't know this at the time, but there's a huge betrayal coming in his future yeah. that will be part of his storyline, and also he'll be the sort of representative of the Maquis. But having him betray the crew at the behest of Starfleet intelligence makes him totally untrustable. Right. So that Cisco should have never fallen for his betrayal right. later. He's done it once. Don't. Yeah. You know. I. I. And Cisco has that line. I take it. You know. Uh, it's something like. You know. I. I've learned never to, to always take the word of a person wearing that uniform. And uh, my <laughs> yeah. favorite part of that is that Kira Norris is standing right behind him, and the look on her face of like you have got <laughs> to be crapping me up. Like you're serious on this. Like, <laughs> like, like her face is like no. You kill this guy right now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. We don't need uh, this guy. And, and seriously. Uh, uh, I I hadn't uh, so I've watched the the run of Deep Space Nine a, a few times and and I I have a really particular dislike of the Eddington character not just because of what he does but I really dislike the whole Les Mis thing. He's so like, sanctimonious yeah oh, yeah yeah I just can't stand it and um, so, I, so I'm rewatching these to talk about it with you and I'm like oh crap Eddington's in this one <laughs> crap and um, and then of course I remembered you know, as he's doing it that he they use him as a plot point in the second episode to delay the Defiant. And yeah. um, seriously, uh, that's it. Uh, I, I understand yeah. he's taking orders from a higher power, but that means sayonara. You're out. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't give this guy any response. I, I would assign him to cleaning the, the, the promenade, you know, with the um, with the waxing machine from now on. Yeah. I, that's I, I don't trust this guy with anything. If he's taking orders from a higher power, then no, Cisco's the boss. You gotta, you gotta get rid of him. And um, thank so, God we get Worf next season, so somebody can sit at yeah. tactical. We don't need this guy. Yeah. Yeah, and and of course he was brought. So as I read, because I was like, oh, Eddington, but I read that he was initially <laughs> brought on um, with the idea that he would be a, a changeling infiltrator. Mm, okay. And that at the end of the season, after we, they, they didn't want to just have him brought on and then exposed right away in one episode. Right. So they were going to have him be around for a while and then get exposed. But then I guess they liked him and they decided not to go that direction. I don't know. Uh, okay. But they still they still make him a villain, but in a different way. Um, yeah. But Eddington's the character that I dislike. We already have a station security in Odo. And yeah. then when they bring on Worf, now we've got three of them. So I, I he, he felt really, really redundant except for um, 
except for what he's doing to mess everybody up. And at that point, I think you just don't invite him to your party anymore. Yeah. And maybe it was too early because we know that war is brewing and we're going to need an intelligence side of it. But by the time he goes, we get Admiral Ross. And then also we have Section 31 encroaching. So you do that gets fulfilled later in later seasons. We don't really need him at that point. But uh, in the episode, of course, Eddington is taking orders from Admiral Todman, played by Leon Russom. And I should note that Todman is the first operations admiral we see in Star Trek, the yeah. first guy in yellow. Yeah, he's wearing yellow. Yeah. He just teched the tech so good they had to just send him all the way up to admiral. <laughs> uh, he's got a – Russum has an impressive career in TV film and on the stage. He's still acting today. His most recent role was old guy that gets eaten in the woods in A Quiet Place. Oh, very nice. <laughs> he has the rare distinction of playing an admiral in two eras of Trek, having played the Starfleet commander-in-chief in Star Trek VI. His character is only known as Bill in that movie, but some fans have headcanoned his last name as Todman, suggesting there is a connection. Uh, perhaps he's an ancestor of the Todman of the 24th century. Nice. I do like, uh, I like very much the way that Starfleet uh, Command handles this when they learn about the plot. They're like, you know what? We're just going to let them do it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And everybody in the room's like, wait, wait, what? This is going to cause a war with the Dominion. And he's like, well, not if they do it. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Not if they're successful. It's like it's really fascinating. It's it's you know Starfleet looking at this crazy plot and saying, "Sure, go for it." You know, like, and it's kind of dark because we've seen situations like this before on Trek, yeah. where say Picard's response is, "Well, we got to call the Dominion. We got to let them know they're coming." Like that. Gosh. That's the polite thing to do. Or stop them. Yes, yeah, stop them. Or, or just stop them. Yeah. Yeah. Stop them or or let them know what's happening. And command is like, nah, let's just see what happens. Let's watch. Um, yeah. And it, it makes sense. I mean, it, uh, Starfleet has identified the Dominion as a huge threat. Yeah. And that the Romulans and Cardassian intelligence agencies want to go and do a sneak attack. Starfleet doesn't get its hands dirty. Sure. Um, and they can still say, we had no idea. You know? Yeah, it's the two secretive intelligence agencies. So there's a lot of deniability on your uh, side as well. You can go, yeah. well, we didn't know. Yeah, the, the, right. I mean, the, that whole they're they're sitting around watching a video from an Auburn Tain saying, <laughs> you know, nobody else knows we're doing this, but we're yeah. doing it. Um, yeah. And it's too late to stop us. And he's kind of right. And yeah. so Starfleet's like, well, let's just uh, cross our fingers and hope for the best. Yeah. And speaking of an Auburn Tain, yeah. uh, we've got one more VIP for this yeah. episode, played, of course, by Paul Dooley, a role that he reprises from his appearance in the second season episode, The Wire. And Dooley, I mean, if you don't know this guy, he's definitely a, a top five, that guy. Yeah. Uh, he discovered acting in college after serving in the Navy. He got a start in stand-up comedy in the 60s. He also worked as a magician and a clown. His first on-screen role was for the 1963 TV series East Side, West Side, and he's gone on to over 200 credits on IMDb including playing the dad in Breaking Away, Wimpy in Altman's Popeye, the dad in 16 Candles, dad in 16 Candles yeah. Larry's father in, in uh, father-in-law in Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, The Voice oh, yeah. of Sarge in Pixar's Cars, and many more. Uh, there's a great episode of the podcast, I Was There Too, where the host, Matt Gorley, talks to him about being oh. America's dad in the 80s. It's, it's yeah, and, and his first Broadway credit was in The Odd Couple, like hmm. the debut of the Odd Couple, okay. and he was the understudy for Felix Un- uh, for Felix Unker, sure uh, for Art Carney, and um, and got that role when Art Carney left the, the 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 show. I mean, that's like this guy. He was born in 1928. Yeah, right. He's like 91 years now, uh, old now. He's still alive. Born in 1928. Can you imagine like growing up in the 30s? 
and 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 not like imagine like 90s you telling your 12 year old self your 10 year old self in the 30s about star trek deep space nine i mean yeah. like the stuff that like i think sometimes we forget and this is just me putting on my historical fiction writer hat but we forget how connected we are like there are people alive today who were alive before world war ii you know they who who were alive for the great depression right. and it's just i mean we're we're getting to the tail end of that but still I, I, when you think about this guy and this enormous long career that he's had on stage and screen, it's pretty incredible. And was there ever a guy who was more appalled Dooley than this guy? I mean, like that name. I know yeah. that's not his birth name. Dooley isn't his. I think it's his stage name. Yeah. But he's appalled Dooley for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, My he's favorite. a kid. He's a kid, like like you said, this scenario where you're talking to him in the 30s. Like he's a yeah. kid who's probably bemoaning the fact that he was born a little too late to really get into vaudeville, and it's like, <laughs> what am I going to do now? Fast forward, he's on a, this thing called cable television. He's right. on streaming shows. He's yeah, he's all over the you're, place. You're in every movie in the 90s as the dad. Yeah, um, he was also, and this is my favorite credit that he has. He created the Electric Company, and was yes. one of the head writers on the Electric Company. Yeah, that is nuts. Like I loved that show when I was a kid, and to and to think about him as both this this great actor, great great character actor, but yeah. also a person who wrote for an educational kids program that basically did sketch comedy. I mean, yeah. I what a career he's had, I, and what a great get he is for this part. Yeah. Um, he is talk about you know I was talking about how um, Lovak has that that subtle evil tinge to him. Tane is your dad until he's not, until right. he's <laughs> until he's like the head of the the Gestapo, and you're like, oh crap! I mean, like, yeah. he he can be scary, really that's, scary. That's a real smiley thing, you know. The guy in the cardigan is the most dangerous right. guy in the room. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, th- th- there's there's just this wonderful flair to him, um, th- in the same way that you were talking about. Uh, uh, Saul Rubinek, you know, playing that that, that collector character. Mm-hmm. I mean, he brings a real um, a real flair to this character. I'm like, oh, Garrick, so good to see you. Now I don't have to send somebody to kill you. Again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like it's just, delivery. Yeah, yeah, it's just fantastic. Um, <laughs> and I'm so glad that they brought him back. So, of course, this is spoiling a later episode. But uh, is it? I think in Purgatory Shadow is that the title of the yes. episode? Yes. Where we find out that the Dominion, we 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 discover. A number of people the Dominion has been has replaced with shapeshifters, and he's one of them. Or well, no, I guess he's not one. He's 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 in a jail cell with a few people who've been right. replaced yeah. by changelings. Um, and Garrick gets to have his his last moment with this guy, who is his dad. Yes. Um, and this is something that the book A Stitch in Time explores a little bit. Hmm. Um, the idea is, and I and. So because I've read the book and because I've watched the show, I can't remember what shows up where. I think, sure. I think though, that the book covers mostly stuff that's just happened in the show. I don't, I don't think Andrew Robinson wrote new family material and stuff. Like, for example, he puts in there a betrayal of Tane in The Stitch in Time, but I, I can't imagine it's the betrayal that they continually talk about in the show. In fact, right. most of the canon stuff that you read about the, these two characters, they refer to an unknown betrayal. Yeah. Uh, like we still really don't know 
what he did to betray, uh, what, what Garrick did to betray Tane. And even um, in The Wire, when Garrick is talking about it, he gives like several different versions yeah. of it. We never find out what it is. Right. And, and there's that great line, like right at the end, I think it's right at the end of the first of these two episodes of, the, of Improbable Cause. He's like, I never betrayed you. Not in my heart. <laughs> 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 it's like, <laughs> nice qualification there. Huh? Right. Like, well, <laughs> you really betrayed this guy. <laughs> sure. It's just business. Yeah. yeah but, but not in your heart. I love that. <laughs> um, and, you know, it, and then when Tane says, come, you know, join me and together we could rule a galaxy yes. of father and son. And, and Odo's like, Garrick, this guy tried to kill you. Garrick, this guy is a mass murderer. He's like super evil. And he's like, I know, but you know, I'm back, you know? (laughs) So, you know, like all is forgiven. I think they even say that at one point. Um, But yeah, Dooley's fantastic, just fantastic. And he's ominous. Um, And I think he also plays uh, Tane's uh, madness really well on the bridge in the very last act of, of uh, the Dias cast. Um, That's gotta be a hard role to play. You're told, Okay, uh, you are the last person standing on the bridge of a Romulan warbird as everything you've planned is crashing down around you. You've made yeah. a horrible tactical error, and you're going to die. Um, and I think he plays that madness uh, really well in that scene. And it's the madness and danger of, just to bring back uh, Julius Caesar again, yeah. of of a Caesar, of somebody who is completely unquestioned and you see in like a movie you know about rome or something where you bring somebody in front of the king uh he better be happy because if he's not he's just gonna flip his hand and then you're gonna be gone gone, right you feel that when he comes in yeah and and now yeah now he's been betrayed not he's been betrayed by his own uh pride his own (laughs) yes yeah which is very shakespearean yeah pride Um, comes before the fall in um in a way, I guess Andy Robinson is a guest actor on this show. Uh, he's only been in thirty seven out of the one hundred and seventy six episodes. Yeah, and Garrick is he's just unquestionably one of the best characters on DS Nine, maybe in Trek and sci fi as a whole. Something that we hear about sometimes on this show is that a certain character or a certain actor was brought on to play a character that was meant to be a one off or a glorified extra, but the performance and the actor in the role struck such a chord that the writers they couldn't help but keep bringing them back so they could write more for them and we could see more of them. Yeah. And that was really the case with with Garrick and and Andy Robinson really embodies the role completely. And he had a lot of input, apparently, with the writers about the character. And as you mentioned, he kept these notes and journals kind of yeah. in character as Garrick, which later you know went into a stitch in time. And and actually, in real life, became really good friend friends with Alexander Siddig uh, hmm. and uh, was, I think, the godfather to his and none of his yeah. child. I yeah. mean, like like. Not only was he a, a really vital part of the cast, but our, but really became part of the family that we that we often hear about on Deep Space Nine. Literally, in this case, and yeah, um, and and that relationship that the two actors share really comes through in their scenes together between Bashir and Garrick. And yeah. um, and 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 I'm glad that we got to start with that one. Um, one of the notes I had to talk about was there are a number of small moments of grace in both of these episodes. Okay. And um, I think one of them is when Bashir returns to Garrick to give him the chocolates for the journey. And yeah. Yeah. yes, as a writer, it's a way to have, if you were going to have it end with the isolinear rod, it's an excuse for Bashir to talk to him. Right. But, but as it plays now, it's like, Hey, I, I know you're going off on this really difficult journey and, 
here's a little something to to help you out, you know, just a, just a, a small gift. And, and yeah. it's a gift that Garrick had given to Bashir. And um, I, I think that this, these, this two-parter is full of little moments of grace like that that I think really play to the strength, the strong relationship between the characters and the actors. Yeah, the humanity, if you'll forgive the uh, term, yeah. of the characters that are non-Starfleet, non-Federation in DS9 is, I think, what makes them really compelling and us really connect to them, even while they're not necessarily interested in the probity and forthrightness that our, you know, heroic Starfleet characters are. Right. I really love Garrick's initial take on the boy who cried wolf story oh, where he's gosh. like, Oh, that kid's right. clever. That kid's real smart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then he kind of, he learns, he learns yeah. the, the moralizing, you know, human take on it. And he's like, well, then he should have just told different lies. <laughs> That's one of the best pieces of writing in the two parter. Yeah. Um, is the way they really give that some time too, And that, that smugness from Bashir, like, oh, you don't get you don't get the moral to this story. And he's like, no, I do. Don't tell the same lie twice. And Bashir's like, oh, crap. I mean, like, <laughs> it's perfect. I mean, it, it, it's like when you're when you're writing something and you find that moment where you can have one character who believes something really strongly and another character who believes another one. And they can they can take the same thing and interpret it differently for their worldview is fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's really really fabulous. I think that Garrick is like, he's that rare character who becomes more interesting the more that we know. Yeah. Like, most often when you've got a mysterious, you know, badass character, when we finally get their backstory or we dive into their history, it takes the mystery uh, and they become less interesting. But Garrick becomes more compelling yeah. and tragic the more we learn about him. Have you ever yeah, had a character I, like Garrick in any of your work or wanted to write uh, a character like that? I, it's so hard. I, I don't know if I've been able to pull it off. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in project 1065, I, I, it's a book about a kid who's a spy in the Hitler youth. And, uh, so I do a lot of the spy stuff and the, the basically the villain of, of the book is, a, another kid, um, who, uh, who is German and, uh, is, is being raised by the Hitler youth essentially. And, um, I, I tried to get at some nuanced things that the, the villain, the, the kid, um, Fritz is a, is a kid who's been bullied. He himself has been the been beaten down many many times, and when when Michael, our our main character, teaches him to fight back, um, rather than using that ability to fight back to protect people the way that Michael does, Fritz uses it to uh, hurt other people. Um, mm. He becomes the the bully the way that, yeah. that Nazi Germany uh, largely, and to use a very weak metaphor, uh, became the bully of the world. And um, so I, I tried to have a very complicated character there as well. Who, um, but he, but I never tried to make him redeemable by the end the way that they tried to do with Garrick. Um, yeah. This is a guy who has admittedly tortured people um, mm -hmm. and um, killed people. We've seen him kill people uh, in the show, sort of just indiscriminately, just be like, well, he deserves to die, you know. And um, yeah, speaking <laughs> of Intech from the previous episode, I mean, like he just kills people when he thinks they need killing, and he would yeah. have killed Eddington. For sure. Um, oh man! I wish you'd been there. <laughs> I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then to take that character and redeem him is is really fascinating. In in a stitch in time, and I, I'm sorry to keep bringing you back uh, to this oh, book, please. but but because Robinson wrote it and and was so um, involved in it, uh, Doctor Parmok, who is um, mentioned in this episode, uh, in one of these two, Tane is saying. Do you remember that Dr. Parmok? You interrogated him. You got him to confess without even laying a finger on him. 
Right. And there's this, you know, they, he's like, he stared at him for like three days or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he says, you know, they're, they're laughing about how he got this guy to confess. In the book, he finds Dr. Parmok again in the ruins of Cardassia when, after he's gone back. And Parmok is helping victims of the Dominion War. Huh. And Parmok recognizes him as the man who tortured him and um, is is able to actually help Garrick with some of Garrick's uh, essentially uh, PTSD or at least his his um, his his uh, huge emotional reaction to the devastation of of his homeworld. Yeah. Um, and it it's just a, it's more of a testament to that character that it's believable that he could meet a former a torture victim and that that torture victim could still befriend him in a, in a way. I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound too creepy. Like, Oh, you know, uh, some sort of Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. But, no. um, but Garrick changes, he grows, he changes, but he's still this person who's ruthless when he needs to be, uh, see in the pale moonlight, which you've discussed. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that using Garrick in a story is great because he puts so many of the values that Starfleet takes for granted into that stark relief. Yes. You know, he's the ultimate pragmatist because self-interest makes sense. And yeah. when the Federation finds itself up to its neck because they were trying to help or intervene in something, he's there to say, well, you don't see this kind of trouble with self-interest. Right. Yeah. If you just kill him, he'd be done with it. We see a change take place in him. And just like we'd want to happen in the story you know, the the races of the Bajoran sector begin to see the Federation as a positive force. It's like the famous root beer scene from Way of the Warrior where Garrick and Quark are talking about how annoying the Federation are, but they're probably the only hope that they have against the Dominion. Right, right. Uh, and, and so with, with Garrick, as you pointed out, one of the best things that you can do with a villain is have them challenge the morals of the of the hero. Yeah. Not, not just be somebody that's hard to kill, but somebody that forces them to make a really difficult decision. And the, the war does that. The war is the big villain and, and the Dominion is the big villain. They, they force the, the Federation to make some tough choices. But yeah. by having Garrick there as the, the, the devil on the shoulder of, of uh, Cisco and other characters throughout the show saying, look, the easy way out is this. And if you could just set aside your Federation morals for a second. <laughs> yeah. We're done. Um, yeah, and, and those morals are even fungible just from society to society or race to race. I think so much of DS9 is about the clash of cultures and how different peoples or, or races don't trust each other, don't understand each other. And in this episode, we get this right out of the gate as Bashir is trying to convince Garrick that Shakespeare is cool. And Garrick's like, I don't think so. This Julius Caesar guy. I don't how did know. he not see it coming? How can he get ganked by somebody right next to him? Yeah. But of course, just like the root beer scene, at the end of Dia's cast, Garrick sees some of the wisdom in Julius Caesar and, and quotes to Tane that line about their, the fault being in their stars. Of course, when Cassius says that to Brutus and Julius Caesar, he's saying that it's their fault that Caesar rules over them. But Garrick really means it as, you know, they weren't destined to fail. They overestimated their infallibility. Yeah. It's a moment of humility. Yeah. Yay, uh, illusion. Did it. Yeah. Um, I absolutely. I, I, I really like the Shakespeare references in this one. Obviously, Star Trek beats their their Shakespeare references to death uh, over and over and over again. Yes. Um, but I, th I thought it was well done, and especially to have an alien race um, and one that's not claiming credit for it the way the Klingons did. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> but to have an alien race, you know, exploring that and saying, okay, well, I can see a point in this. Some frank uh, criticism. 
Yeah. <laughs> could, I, um, could I say literature is something that has come up on the show before? And I, I really wonder what their fiction is like. Um, they discuss it a little bit. I guess I can imagine it being a little bleak and being concerned with with duty, uh, like a lot of Russian literature is. But I, somehow I doubt that Cardassian works would be as darkly comic as a lot of Russian literature is. No, and aren't we told? And this is me just trying to remember from years ago. But I think we're told that there's a that Cardassian detective novels essentially are much like their court cases. You're guilty. You're like as soon as you're arrested, it's over. Like, right. You you aren't arrested unless you're guilty, and and um, then it becomes an exploration of why they did it. You know, it's yes, like, right. I, I don't know. It's like a reverse Columbo or something. Where you, yes. You know that they, I mean, they, you don't know that they did it, but being arrested is, is tantamount to, uh, to the, 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 uh, the decision in the court case already. Yes. And, um, I, I, it's an exploration perhaps of the psychology of, yeah. of the, uh, the perpetrator, like, uh, like Nabokov's Lolita, like it starts with him in jail, right. but then we go back and examine why he right, felt right, he had right. to do this. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and maybe the, Maybe it's like a, or or maybe it's Kafkaesque in the sense that um, we're not going to explain why the bureaucracy is there. We're, we don't have a hero who's going to beat it. Right. Um, you're just going to watch somebody go through it and suffer. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I think I Receive and Bear was the one who pioneered the idea of the Cardassian monologue, uh, and which has been described as, uh, you know, people talking like they're in a Russian novel. And I think I've said this on the show before, but even more than Germans or Russians, I think that the Cardassians in a lot of ways embody the idea of Prussian virtues, yeah. like the virtues of efficiency and austerity and discipline. I felt I've always felt like they were supposed to be Nazi Germany, and um, mm. uh, w with the relationship that they have to the to the Bajorans in particular, who feel very much like the Jewish diaspora, and then and then uh, yeah. finding land again. Um, I, I've always felt that they were kind of a thinly veiled metaphor for that. And then, as with any race that sticks around long enough in Star Trek, they begin if they get enough screen time, they grow past. That initial uh, that initial thing. The Romulans mm. aren't exactly the Cold War villains that we that, right. that they always were. The the Klingons aren't exactly like this feudalistic uh, Japanese warrior. Oh, I guess they became that at first. They were much more of a sort of uh, uh, just a mustache twirling villains and killed you. Yes. Yeah, um, became more of the way of the warrior kind of thing with their with their development. The the Ferengi, uh, I think, were really are really very much uh, became a critique of American. A society, uh, and they were at first just supposed to be again whip whip uh, cracking villains. And I think that Deep Space Nine, I, I know the Ferengi are played for laughs much of the time, but but when you get Quark going back to the homeworld and his mom scolding him for taking his action figure out of the package because it reduced the value of it, um, <laughs> his Marauder Mo action figure, I love that. Yeah. And that is America. That, that's American capitalism that's being critiqued there. Kids sure. buying toys. That they don't take out of the box because it's worth more to have it in the box. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so again, going off on a tangent, but I think any race that's allowed to stick around long enough can grow past its um, can grow past its its initial um, sometimes black and white vision of what they were. But but I've always seen them as very much uh, post World War II Germany. Sure. Uh, and I but I agree with that sort of Prussian uh, mentality overall. Yeah. Garrick's inscrutability extends to his sexual orientation. Uh, we yes. were talking about the DS9 doc before. And Andy Robinson has maintained for years that Garrick wasn't strictly heterosexual, but it was nice to see him unequivocally repeat that in the documentary. Yeah. 
Right. So this was one of the things I wanted to discuss about Garrick in this in this episode with you. Sure. Um, is he gay? And in the documentary, uh, we have Iris Stephen Bear saying, oh, he's absolutely gay. Right. I mean, like when when Robinson puts it a little bit more um, directly. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, we'll keep the family version of this show. Sure. Uh, but um, I I feel like he's uh, more bisexual or. Um, or asexual in a way. Um, but, but, but so, uh, I found an interview with Robinson where he was talking about a stitch in time when I was looking up that book to remind myself of it. Mm -hmm. I read it years ago. Um, but he talks about, uh, his sexuality with the character. And this is from well before the documentary. If you'll, if you'll forgive me for reading this for a second, but oh, I found please. this. Uh, he says, I started out playing Garrick as someone who doesn't have a defined sexuality. He's not gay. He's not straight. It's a non-issue for him. Basically, his sexuality is inclusive. But it's Star Trek, and there were a couple of things working against that. One is that Americans really are very nervous about sexual ambiguity. Also, this is a family show. They have to keep it on the straight and narrow. So then I backed off from it. Right. Originally, in that very first episode, I loved the man's absolute fearlessness about pretend, presenting himself to an attractive human being. I think he's talking about Bashir there. Sure. Uh, the fact that the attractive human being is a man doesn't make him any difference to him. But that was a little too sophisticated, I think. For the most part, the writers supported the character beautifully. But in that area, they just made a choice. They didn't want to go there. And if they didn't want to go there, I can't because the writing doesn't support it. Yeah. So – I, it's interesting that yes, he came in and was just like, I'm going to play this guy as very interested in Bashir and, uh, very interested in Zial, you know, or, or Zial seems to be more interested in him, but they, they seem to have a relationship toward the end of the show. Um, not, yeah. a, not a, not a romantic one necessarily. Yeah. I never really bought it. And I don't yeah. know if it's because they just, you know, Zial was coming in and out, uh, and they didn't know what they wanted to do with the character right. and maybe there was no future in it once they kind of knew what they wanted to do with the character. But also like she isn't, she's like 17 or 18 and yeah. Derek is certainly seasoned, yeah. uh, if not old. So it always yeah. seemed kind of weird to me. So maybe, maybe we can play it off though as like Zial having a crush on him or, yeah. or interested in him i don't i don't think <laughs> it's the it's correctly. the first part of the thorn birds not the second part of the thorn <laughs> right. birds right so i i don't think that uh i as I, if i recall uh uh garrick is very friendly with her and and and, and loves her and respects her but i sure. don't think loves her that way um mm. i don't i don't think they ever show that on screen at least but well try uh, telling that to the internet because oh, i've really? had a great time seeing the insane mental gymnastics some people online are putting themselves through to try and cope with the fact that they don't like gay people and the coolest deadliest character their favorite character on the show isn't straight as an arrow and just the the really? things that they're going through to try wow. to countenance this is is incredible Wow. Well, I got to admit, and this is probably my, my naivete to watching it the first time around. I didn't yeah. think Garrick was hitting on Bashir. I didn't see that. I mean, now rewatching it, I'm like, oh, my gosh. And of course, there's a whole lot of subtext here, I guess. Um, yeah. I just thought he was just being flamboyant. And I, and I, I didn't. I, the, again, as he says, the writers didn't give him anything explicitly to work with. And yeah. so yeah, yeah. without that, there's no way of knowing it. But to hear the actor say, Oh, I was totally playing him gay. You know, so um, that's interesting. And um, I, and I, in I, any case, Garrick would yeah. underplay it 
you know, even if he was, I mean, he's he's pansexual, so great, right. but he's still right. Garrick, so he's not going to be like, hey, you know, hot stuff. He's going to, you know, right. just be very subtle about it. Right, and and um, you've talked a lot of, uh, on the <coughs> show about Kirk using his sexuality as a tool. Yeah. Um, and you could ima- very easily imagine, and we've seen this in a lot of spy thrillers, movies, and books, about somebody using their their sexuality, male or female, to to achieve spy goals, uh, intelligence goals. And yeah. uh, with Garrick, you can absolutely imagine that he's a person who would, uh, if, if if that's the way he already uh, was, it, pan, bisexual, pansexual, uh, that that he would use that as a tool in his arsenal as well. Yeah. I think that uh, just, just, it just reminds me of like, I, th- I think of like Queen, for instance, you know, like it's, it's 1981. Queen <laughs> is the awesomest band ever and you are rocking out. And then you find out that, you know, Eddie, uh, not, or that Freddie Mercury has right. AIDS, right? And is bisexual. And you're like, no, what? No. He's so manly. He has <laughs> sex with men. That's what, yes. He's a top for sure. It's just, wow. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I, I didn't realize that bothered a lot of people. Uh, that's my other naivete is that I am. Stay off Facebook. I will. I definitely try to. Putting Odo and Garrick together is a, yes. is a fun and unlikely pairing, the, the man of integrity and the man with none. But uh, it pays some real dividends, I think, in this in this two-parter. Uh, just because uh, you know, I, I like the scene in the runabout where they're challenging each other's philosophies. Mm-hmm. And Garrick tells him basically, hey, you're not that noble. You know, you just don't like disorder and untidiness. So don't try to like judge me. And you don't you don't care about anybody. Like yeah. this isn't this isn't emotion for you. It's tying up loose ends. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to that idea of like cultures clashing on the show, there's a lot of similarities in how Odo and Garrick relate to their cultures. Um, they're both exiles of a kind. Yes. Um, they both really want to return and be accepted into their home cultures again. I think this is the first time that we actually hear Odo say out loud that he wants to rejoin the link. I, I'm pretty sure it is. And that's the, 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 the big reveal of that of that torture scene is that, you know, uh, Garrick is telling him, yeah. um, you just tell me something, tell me anything that I can take back to Tane. And, um, and find, you know, Odo hears what he's saying and realizes I need to confess something, but Odo is obviously not going to give away any state secrets. He's not going to give them anything super useful. What he will do is he will admit something that nobody else knows and it, it will be useless to Tane, but, of an incredible opening up and, and Garrick realizes this and, and, and the fact that he hides it later on. He doesn't tell Tane when Tane is like, did you get anything out of him? He's like, no, he doesn't even tell Tane what, what Garrick, what, what Odo said. Yeah. Right. And he doesn't put it in the Starfleet report, which is that nice scene at the end. But the, the, yeah, the, when he says like, I, I want to go home, not to, not to deep space nine. I want to go home to my people. Yeah. And, um, that's a huge revelation in the show. I read that um, that uh, that uh, and you're gonna have to help me with his name, Rene Auberjonois. Am I saying that? That's correct. Yeah. Close. Oh, well, the one thing I learned from the Deep Space documentary is I've been mispronouncing every single actor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nana Visitor and Nana, Colum. Yeah. It's Colum meaning. Colum. I didn't, yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was Colm. I So okay. So um, anyway, uh, when when that actor, when Rene Auberjonois was told we're going to reveal where you came from, that mm. it's going to be the founders and the dominion. He was actually kind of pissed. He was like, if you take that away from me as an actor, if you take away that mystery, 
I got nothing left. And of course, <laughs> what he didn't realize is that the writers gave him tons of great stuff from that point well, yeah, on. Yeah, what if it becomes the whole show, though? It, what it about became that? the whole show, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he later said that this, this anecdote was told in, with him saying, I was so wrong. They gave me so much great stuff to play yeah. with. And this moment of this, revealing this really opens up this whole this whole problem of with Odo that he wants desperately to return to his people, but he can't because of his principles. And yes, this is the the brilliant connection that, that connects Garrick and Odo yeah. to, to me, it's tame speech about attacking the founder homeworld at the end of improbable cause that finally draws the real connection between these two characters, between Odo and Garrick. And I love the way it's staged. So Avery Brooks sets up the scene so that as the director, he sets up the scene so that uh, Tane is talking to Odo in the foreground face to face. And in the background, in between them is Garrick. Right. He's right. he's he's out of focus, but he's clear. He's he's doing that that reptilian thing of like flitting back and forth, you know, looking from <laughs> face to face that he does so well yeah. in acting that character. And Tane's telling him about, you know, like. Uh, that, that, that you've been separated from your people and, and that sort of thing. And Garrick in the background, you can just see it in his face. Like he has been too, that Garrick wants desperately to be back in the fold of Cardassia. Oh yeah. Um, and he can't because of his principles and it's going to keep both of these men on the wrong side of their governments and their worlds for the next three or four years. Yeah, that belonging and, and that longing uh, yeah. that they both yearn for is yeah. interesting. And I, I think that it's really interesting that as much as I, we talk about monoculture, I think that the Federation can be seen as a monoculture as yeah. well, like just yeah. to stand in for Space America. And so if we really <laughs> yeah. want to uh, respect other cultures and you know share the galaxy with them, I think you have to respect the fact that they don't want to be a part of you. You know, There's people yeah. who, are, who are good and that we can admire who want to be in their own country and don't want to necessarily just assimilate you know, to our culture necessarily. Right. Yeah, I guess there's characters like Bosch and TNG. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of other humans that we meet who are not a part of Starfleet and not some scientist on a planet, you know, like you yeah. know, who've got their own mission, but who are just people, with, you know, I guess Thomas Riker in a way. Um, <laughs> You're forgetting the outrageous O'Connor. Oh, yes. Uh, how could I forget <laughs> the outrageous O'Connor? Uh, yeah. Uh, now I know how I forgot him. Um, <laughs> but no, you, but, but I, I'm trying to think of those... Um, yeah, there are a, there are a few, but we don't see a lot. It's it's like yeah, and the McKee get they represent that yeah. I think in a lot of ways, but they yeah. get demonized because they have to represent you know they have to become this third front in in the war. But yeah. really, they're just most of them are just free settlers who had their land taken away, and they're like, hey, that was that was our land. Yeah, the McKee is a strange name for them. Do you know where that comes from? Well, it comes the, from the French Resistance in World yeah, War II. Yeah, the French Resistance were called the McKee, and. Um, they had a very specific purpose. <laughs> yeah, like, right. We're going to take down the Nazis and get our country back. And uh, the Maquis, I, I mean, I, I get it. They're, they're, if, if we take the Nazi metaphor for, for Cardassia and them encroaching into their settlements, it kind of fits. But but then to fight the Federation as well, it's like it's like if the Maquis also fought the Allies – I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Hot take. Uh, hot take. But if this was done today, maybe they would be called ISIS. Oh wow. Maybe. Maybe I get where you're going though. Or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 
Well, um, anyway, moving on from that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this episode isn't nearly that deep, but I think there is no. a sort of repudiation of the idea of unilateral action and, and secrecy. You've got the Federation, who for the most part is plain dealing, and then you get the two most secretive and powerful organizations in the show, the Tal Shiar and the Obsidian Order, and they just say, right, we're going to put a stop to this. Yeah. And they go out there and they just get played and wiped out. They get they, they really get played. Um, and it's a really wonderful moment. And I... Um, you know, this isn't there since we were just talking about uh, present day terrorism, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, they talk about this a little bit in the, the documentary, but um, this is all pre 2001. This is all pre uh, towers coming down and 9-11. Right. And um, the Al Qaeda and, and the Taliban uh, were already active and um, uh Osama bin Laden was being hunted by the Clinton administration. Um, You know, uh, there was a terrorist attack against the the Twin Towers uh, from the subways in 93, I think it was. So there was already beginning to be a terrorism element. Uh, We were starting to see a terrorism of a deep cell kind of thing. And this is where I'm going with this is that I don't think that the writers of Deep Space Nine had their fingers on that pulse because I don't think that that was a part of the larger uh, American conversation until really the turn of the century. Yeah. Um, but it's incredibly prescient because the the Dominion as shapeshifters are playing a long game, and this is to get back to where to, to this to this epic failure when Lovak says, "Like we didn't design this, but when we heard." Tane talk about it we pushed it like we right. encouraged yeah it. yeah and that is some long game crap it's i mean that yeah that means they have people at the highest levels everywhere who've been embedded for who knows how long yeah and you know one of the things that that changed about the way that we began to see terrorism in the turn of the century post 9 11 was the terrorists who attacked the twin towers um were uh, middle class or upper class families from where they came from. They were well educated. They were not the they were not the the poor person from the streets of northern Belfast who was going to bomb London because uh, uh you know because they 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 hate England. These were and these were people who had been trained in Germany and the United States who'd lived next door to people for years and years and years. And I feel like I feel like that that makes the Dominion one of the most frightening and and scariest villains. Uh, of of any Star Trek show because um, unlike the Scroll who were like you know ha ha Nixon I got close enough to punch you in the face um, <laughs> <laughs> oh but Captain America stop me um, <laughs> unlike the the Scroll who were just kind of like infiltrate to punch you in the face these guys are they're working into our in, into the Federation society into the Romulan society into Cardassian yeah. and they're nudging history and, and doing brain surgery on Cisco. Oh, God. yeah. <laughs> if you're the changeling uh, Bashir, why not just let him die on the table and there right. goes the emissary, but instead, you know, just fulfilling that role. I know. Like, and so that wasn't part of the mission then to kill, right. to kill Cisco, right? I mean, like, it, it in fact makes him trust Bashir even more, the, yeah. the changeling Bashir. I mean, it's, it's some creepy stuff. And uh, I think that it's in that moment when Tane and, and Garrick are on the bridge and there's that oh crap moment of we've been we've been fooled it's like wow this is some deep 
deep infiltration they've done on us if they got us that bad. Um, now, now I'm thinking that the Maki are maybe the Mujahideen, but that's oh, maybe okay. too spicy. Okay, no, no, that's that's an interesting hot take. I'll take that one. It's more like, yeah, like, you know, we'll fight whoever's in here, and if it's the Dominion or uh, the Cardassians, fine. But now right. Starfleet so wants some? Yeah, 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 right, right. I get you. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. But uh, no, I, uh, but I think it's so interesting to rewatch Deep Space Nine with a modern eye. Mm. It's, it's impossible to watch it without the last 20 years um, of history to, to process with it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it makes it even more watchable. Uh, it, it, in a way that some of the Cold War stuff uh, has really fallen away uh, from their from TNG and TOS. Yeah, and as much as this episode seems to sort of uh, castigate, you know, operating on your own, Cisco himself takes it upon himself to try to intervene in this uh, for good reasons, and he gets a slap on the wrist. Yeah, which is fine, but I can't help but feel he also gets a little wink too. I can't help well, but yeah, feel. Well, yeah, I don't know whether to court martial you or promote you. Yeah, and I and I think that his decisive actions probably lead to his promotion to captain yeah. a few episodes later. Yeah, I did write down a question as I was re- rewatching this. I was like, so is is taking the Defiant into the Gamma Quadrant to go and rescue Odo really a good idea? Like. This seems like a really, really bad decision. I, look, I understand they all love Odo, and I understand that he's a valuable <laughs> member of their family. But seriously, taking the Defiant and leaving Deep Space Nine unguarded, I know tomorrow there's going to be 10 ships or something. But right. but like to go into the Gamma Quadrant after one guy, it's a very Star Trek thing. Yeah. It's one of those eye rollers where you're like, and, and you know, like, no. You don't have to volunteer if you don't want to. And of course, every single person's on the bridge, you know. Right, of um, course. Yeah, because yeah. – and so that's the least – like in a, in, a, in a two in two episodes of lots of surprises, that's some cliche unsurprising stuff. Um, yeah. There's a lot and, of volunteering in this episode because Garrick keeps showing up to be like, yeah, hey, let's go yeah. find this guy. It's like, why do you want to do it? Like, this is my <laughs> right. job. But he wants to and, be there to see what happens. And Odo volunteers. Once Odo has cleared the mystery, you blow up your own shop. Right. right, you're done. <laughs> and we're, Odo's done, but then he tells Garrick, oh no, I'm with you for the rest of this. And yeah. yes, Odo's been told by his deep throat character that there's a bigger puzzle to, uh, to solve. And as Garrick points out, he hates loose ends. Right. But it still does seem like he's volunteering to help this guy out. Um, there's a lot of volunteering in this episode, in these episodes. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the, the, that's maybe one of the weakest parts of it. Clearly in the second episode, um, Having they need the defiant there to rescue them in the end, yeah. But we can't have them show up and mess with the resolution, so we've got to slow them down with Eddington, and then once they get there, we can have them boom, 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 blow up a few Jim'Hadar ships and get out. Um, I don't know. I, 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 that part of this one always felt a little light to me, um, like not the best part of this episode. Yeah, but I mean, the good parts wouldn't have fit into one episode. So exactly, you have to... <laughs> it's too much for one episode. And maybe a too little in the good parts, yeah, for, yeah. for two, for one, uh, for, yeah, so for two. Um, so, and, and it really brings the, ca- we got to have the cast in there, the rest of the cast. It, it, you know, we might have one episode that can be almost all Odo and Garrick, but to have two would be a lot. Yeah, no Quark uh, in this episode, yeah. which is rare. <laughs> yeah, he's usually the sort of the heartbeat of that, of the show, and, and, and every, everyone comes to Quarks. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, apparently there was a scene where Odo goes to him to find out, to get his lead basically on the perfume uh, assassin. Okay. They got cut from, from the episodes. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
But you'd think with all the extra time, they could have put it back in. But um, yeah. yeah, I guess not. Uh, anything else that you can think of that we haven't put into this episode? Uh, not a lot. I, I did have like uh, the, the the terrorism uh, terrorism the torture scene. Uh, yeah, is is an incredible scene. Uh, I'm generally not a fan of torture scenes in fiction. Um, in real life, torture is an incredibly ineffective way to get information out of somebody, and yeah. um, and has been condemned. Um, well, by the United Nations and, and by a lot of uh, humanitarian organizations. Um, and so I, I try personally not to write torture scenes. Um, I don't even like it in a cop show where the, the cop gets rough with a, with a, the phone book, not and... a witness, but a, an informant yeah. just to get a little bit of information out of them. Um, because I feel like that's, um, uh, I, I think, it? Yeah, 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 it, 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 yeah, it does romanticize it. It makes us think, oh, all you got to do is is hit a person with a rubber hose a few times, and you're going to stop a terrorist attack. And we know that's not the case. Yeah. And um, uh, there have been the, the 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 there are four lights episodes uh, in TNG are incredible. Yeah. Uh, you know the David Warner stuff; um, those are amazing. But again, it's two episodes of of a person being tortured. Um, there's you know the the great uh, torture scene in Firefly, <laughs> um, where uh, you know uh, uh, in Princess Bride. I mean, there's all kinds of scenes of torture in iconic uh, TV and and film. Um, sometimes played like Princess Bride and and Firefly. Like now, let's see what kind of person you are when I torture you. There's no there's no goal other than right. torturing. Yeah. Um, uh, or or getting information out of somebody. The number of times Batman beats somebody up to get information out of them uh, in comics and film and, and, and stuff is, is incredible. Yeah. So anyway, I, I both love that scene and hate it, uh, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. I think it's an incredibly powerful scene, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm in general not a fan of torture scenes, and I wish that we could um, – have fewer of those if that makes any sense yeah it uh, does it does make sense and i mean despite like how horrible it is yeah it's also i think the show is very effective in showing something that is almost completely esoteric because the way this guy is being tortured is they've got this positronic thing on or whatever right. and he's just he's flaky you know he's just they just make him flaky right. what a star trek way to torture somebody yeah there's i mean no it's not knives. sure there's, yeah there's no bamboo it's but he's right. yeah but it's still we we feel uh thanks to the staging and the performance of the actors yes. you know we feel like this horrible thing and then i love when uh when he finally turns it off and odo just face plants into the bucket <laughs> <laughs> and i do i did like the little detail of all the little flakes of him collecting back up into yes. the bucket I thought that was very nice some great cg um, work I did have a question. The thing that they build looks like a like. What was that board game that had a volcano? <laughs> that oh, okay. What was it? Um, Do you remember I, what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, th- I know what you're talking about. It feels like they just set up this elaborate board game, this mousetrap like board game. Right. Like these three three Romulans come in and piece it together, <laughs> right. you know, and, and like... then they, he pushes the button. Look. I know he can't shape shift, but the guy could walk. Ogo could walk over and just kick that thing just off. Just knock it over, <laughs> right? Like just, just, and then once you're free of the binding field or whatever, go to town and kill everybody. You know, seep under the carpet. I don't know, yeah. but, but, but it's one of those refrigerator questions that, that Hitchcock used to say. Like after the fact, when you're at the refrigerator, you're like, wait. But if you don't think of it in the episode, then it's okay. But um, yeah, and but, R- yeah. Rene Bergenois is. So, I mean. He, 
just the entire um, portrayal of Odo, he's got this voice that's kind of like that. I can't imagine doing that all day. Oh, I know. Uh, but the way yeah. that he employs his instrument in this episode just to yeah. make Odo seem literally and you know, on the verge of discorporation is just great. Yeah, he's like shaking. Again, another nice detail from the from the uh, costuming people is that his his uniform is is flaking off because right. it's all him. Like yeah, he's yeah. not even wearing clothes. It's all him. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really neat reminder. I, I like when they do things like that. Um, uh, so I guess the, the, the other thing I wanted to bring up is that, of course, this is a uh, for an episode that was not intended to be a two parter, but then was. Uh, this becomes a fundamental turning point for the whole series. And we, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the change with the beard and everything. But yeah. um, but seriously, from now, when they're sitting at the table talking to, to Todman and they say, this is going to start a war, it does. Yeah. And um, this is now the, the Dominion War and not just the Cold War that had been played out before this, but – this episode is a turning point for the entire series because yeah. the 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 gauntlet has been thrown. The they die kick the hornet's nest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Federation might not be involved yet, but it's only a matter of time. And again, if if the Federation is America in space, this is World War II, and America is sitting out while the major you know while the major powers in Europe are, are fighting. Right. Um, and it's only a matter of time until we get we get dragged in. Um, it's only a few episodes from now that that Worf shows up, I think, and and yep. and the Klingons uh, in force. Uh, or no, he's all, no, yeah, Worf isn't here yet. Yeah, um, no, but it'll be after uh, Odo uh, kills the other changeling, and then um, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. another kind of hornet's nest. So right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I, again, I, I I love the episode because of Garrick and Odo, uh, but they also really kick off what we all know to be a really fascinating two and a half years of television. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now that we've reached the end of our discussion, you'll receive a promotion for your continued service to the rank of full lieutenant. And the last time that you were here, you requested a transfer to the holodeck programming department to create scenarios where the crew could blow off steam. What kind of hollow programs are you uh, developing? Well, uh, there's some stuff for Riker I can't really talk about. Um, Fair enough, fair enough. uh, Yeah, uh, uh, so, um, but I, I, I like, uh, I like the interactive novels. So I like the ones where you can go in and be somebody else. Sure. Um, the spy thrillers, uh, our man Bashir. Yes. Um, I, I, I love creating those for the crew to blow off a little bit of steam. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, the calisthenic programs, you know, kill, kill the demon, kill Skeletor <laughs> over and over rank. again. <laughs> it has always been popular among our more warlike, uh, uh, crew members. Um, but, uh, no, the basically the uh, the the novels where the Federation, the, the straight up Federation types get to go in and be morally ambiguous. Those okay. are very popular. Yeah, I can see that. I've been watching <laughs> a lot of uh, Voyager lately, and I've been watching uh, Catherine Janeway spend her free time being a governess, and it makes me wonder. <laughs> A couple of things. One of those things is, is this really how, is this like a powerful businessman who then goes and like pays a lady to like whip him or something like that? Does she, <laughs> does she want to let go of the authority and have kids yell at her? Right. And then also, did they really do this in their free time? And then also, we never see anybody not doing a good job. Like if right. anybody would do a bad job, it would be, you know, Harry Kim. And he goes <laughs> and he plays Beowulf in his Beowulf program, but he's like, I am Beowulf. And he's, you never see that guy go in and go, Beowulf, you must save us. 
okay, I'm, I'm going to help you. You know, or like right. they're not playing it right, you know, or they're making kind of lousy choices. Like we've oh, yeah, all, you know. we've all been at a role playing table and yeah. had like that one player that's like, oh, why'd you do that? I do that. <laughs> or the, or the choose your own adventure where you deliberately choose the wrong path. You know? <laughs> yeah. Right. You, yes. It's clear. The author wants you to go a certain direction. You're like, no. Or when you play through a video game for the fourth time and you're like, I'm going to do all the Let's things break you're the not game. supposed to do. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that would be fun. Maybe maybe the holodeck hasn't been around long enough for them to... Uh, That's uh, something else, because when Picard sees it in Farpoint, he yeah. is just floored. And He's like, so, wow, this is amazeballs, yeah. Yeah, fast forward you know, 10, 12 years to Voyager, and everybody is really good at the game, and they're all apparently great actors, just civilians. <laughs> right. Just military people are just fantastic actors. Yeah, not to mention that in, in, in all of our prequel shows, they keep bringing up holographic stuff and it's like yeah, guys yeah. this was a tng thing come on yes but um <laughs> you know but we still get what well, my favorite line from enterprise is when they they take the klingons into a holodeck and they show them chronos and the guy says i think i could see my house from here um <laughs> that's my favorite line in enterprise. <laughs> so underrated uh, so yeah um <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to change positions on the ship. Uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll go into uh, in the intelligence service. Maybe I'll uh, I'll try and be in Starfleet intelligence now. It'd be that, a yeah. Yeah, there's, there, there's the tradition of, you know, the honey trap or the uh, agent or operative that you send to sort of absorb information from somebody right. who doesn't know. You, you could have a whole thing where somebody's in a holodeck program oh, yeah. and then a real life person comes in and pretends to be a, hol hol a holographic character and uh, get some pillow talk from them or something. Yeah. What's your password? What's your what's your Gmail password? Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just for this. It's just a holodeck program. This is part of the game. <laughs> For the game to go on, I, I'm going to need your uh, credit card info. And your Netflix password. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lieutenant Gratz, thanks for once again joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? I am on both Facebook and Twitter under my name, Alan Gratz. It's A-L-A-N-G-R-A-T-Z. And I also have my own website, www.alangratz.com. Awesome. And where can people find your work and pre-order their copy of Allies? Oh, yes, at, at uh, good bookstores anywhere. Um, I'm on Amazon. I'm on Barnes & Noble. I'm at your local independent bookseller, which is where I would prefer that you buy it uh, because I love independent bookstores and would like to support them. Yeah. Uh, but wherever finer books are sold except for Target. I'm not in Target yet. Okay. No, no. Is that some kind of <laughs> negotiation that has to happen? Target is very particular. Interesting. And, uh, we're, we're working on them. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think I've seen Captain Underpants, so I think I that you deserve to be there. I thank you. I appreciated it. <laughs> You live, you live close to the headquarters of Target, I think. Go in there and talk to him for me. I'd appreciate uh, I that. I will. I know people. I've worked at Target myself. There so, you go. Uh, see? Yeah. I'll work my contacts there. I appreciate that. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thanks a lot. I've had a great time. Me too. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. So